Hello, beautiful people. This is your host, Olga Peters, welcoming you to this rebroadcast episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour titled Rural Issues in a Rural State. It was recorded in October 2021, and I chose it based on last week's conversation about tourism that Emily and I had. I thought this deep dive into the legislature's Rural Economic Development Working Group served as a good tie-in. And if you head over to our Facebook page or wherever you subscribe to podcasts, in the show notes, I have included two videos made by visitors about Vermont, just a little food for thought since this show is about the stories we like to tell about, well, everything. Hey, take care, everyone. We'll see you next week. Welcome to this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how things in Montpelier shake out for the rest of us. I want to welcome this week regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, one of three representatives from Brattleboro. How are you, Emily? Good. Oh, it's actually evening. I always say good morning, <laughs> although we always record this at the crack of dawn, but in fact, it is evening. Our lighting is different. We the vibe is cocktails. We could have actually had cocktails for the happy hour, but so good to see you and be with you this evening. It's nice to see you this evening, too. And all the way from Woodstock, Representative Charlie Kimball. So glad you can join us this evening. Good evening. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, glad to be here. And it's the first time that I've visited this this uh, Montpelier happy hour, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank and we're sorry we were remiss to, we didn't tell you to bring a cocktail. Um, <laughs> we long are- ago, and long ago and far away, when we first started, we would have signature cocktails each week and we would have a non-alcoholic one, an alcoholic one, and we would like talk about some of the social life of Montpelier. Mm. And, but we were recording at seven in the morning before the legislative day started and it got ridiculous to try to fake it while we were drinking coffee and so we stopped mm-hmm. and then COVID <laughs> which you know can be an ex- explanation for everything well then COVID <laughs> yeah. no. we're, anyway, back we're to going you, to, to talk today about um, an upcoming public hearing uh, we're hoping that this conversation will help entice people to join this hearing it's on November 2nd uh, in the evening, Emily has information up on her Facebook page. I'll put information in the show notes as well. But it's a public hearing for the Rural Economic Development Working Group of the Vermont House, also known as Red Wing. And um, like many different groups in Montpelier, we have different caucuses focusing on different issues. And I would love to hear from Charlie, who's one of the members what um what has the working um sorry red wing that is a mouthful uh been focusing on right. right now and why do you want to have this public hearing why now what are you hoping to hear from people well thanks just as a little background um red wing is a group of house representatives from all different parties that are really focused on those issues that affect the economies in rural towns of vermont um, if on a whole, Vermont itself, even even when including Chittenden County, uh, counts as rural. Um, but the more rural parts that you know, with towns with less than two thousand people or fifteen hundred, they have much different needs. And so that really brings in representatives from all different parties focused on common issues. Um, and so we, that's the whole genesis of this uh, group. And it's been around for I think maybe fifteen years and ten years. And so the membership keeps changing. Um, but w- about six years ago or five years ago, I joined the caucus uh, or the working group and elected myself as a self-appointed clerk uh, to take notes uh, and to help organize. And uh, when you do that, you uh, then are thrown into, OK, well, what's what's next week look like? Um, <laughs> and part of and I was able to work with some really talented people, um, Chip Conquest, who's no longer with uh, the legislature, he stepped down. But Laura Sibilia, who I know you know, um, has also been a leader in the in the group. Um, I was able to help them in terms of bringing in different information from the state of Vermont 
uh, and members. So we wanted to really solicit direct information from citizens as to what was important to them uh, in terms of sustaining and growing the economy in their towns. Uh, not to always hear from the same people we hear from in the halls of the legislature, uh, because there are many paid advocates. There are many organizations that that do a great job of representing their members. That's, that's not a question, but it's really the most impactful information we get as uh, as representatives is direct from citizens. And so we wanted to have the unvarnished. Tell us what's going on. Uh, this is a third time we've done a public hearing and. Uh, it's been beneficial uh, every time we've done it, and that's why we're having this on November 2nd. And some of the issues are will probably be repeats of what we've heard in the past. Um, mm -hmm. You know, at the top of the list of any list that we look at is continued access to broadband and cellular phone coverage for the state, um, access to quality and affordable child care, uh, also housing. But there's other things like uh, resiliency for climate change in smaller towns and uh, how are we going to electrify our transportation network? Uh, what are small towns doing in terms of uh, wastewater treatment or common water systems? Can they afford to pay for it? How do they pay for it? Uh, so those are all really big questions that we have to deal with. And, um, and that's what our group is organized around. Thank you. Hey, um, before we go into that, I want to step back quickly. And Emily, I'd love for you to give us just a little education because this is Red Wings, a working group, and I accidentally called it a caucus. And I actually, there, there are they two different things? Like, let's have a little legislative education here. I mean, I, Charlie and I often have totally different answers for questions like this. So I'm happy to answer and then we can see what Charlie says. It's one of, like, great pleasure in working together, I think, because of that very thing. Um, a working group and a caucus are the same thing functionally. It's a group of people getting together to solve some problems and advocate on an issue. I think there's a different tone to the language of a working group um, in that it, it has more of that problem solving flair, whereas a caucus um, is more about the identity of the members in it rather than the goals of the members in it. But that's like totally semantic really when it comes down to it. My guess is that they just really like the acronym Red Wing and they wanted that, but I, yeah. get, I was not there when it was founded. Um, the other piece of this that I think is fun and interesting is, so when I started in the house, I started going to the Rural Economic Development Working Group meetings um, cause I live on a dirt road and there's no cell phone service at my house. And I think that a lot of the challenges of rural Vermonters apply to almost like, and the solutions for rural Vermonters will improve the life of all Vermonters. Mm -hmm. And so I was yeah. sort of committed to being at that table and totally got teased about it from, I think some of the members who were like, what are you doing here? You're from the big city. <laughs> um, and <laughs> over the years, you know, one of the people who were teasing me was Rep Kelly Payala who came out to my house one day and was like, oh no, you really do live out of the middle of nowhere, don't you? This, you know, it's more rural than where I live. And I was like, yep, uh-huh. And then um, recently we had a forest products tour that I think Charlie will probably tell us more about and came to learn and embarrassed I didn't know already that the two largest um, wood companies, like wood producers, manufacturers in um, finishers in, I'm not using the right technical term, in Vermont are actually both in Brattleboro, so not co coincidentally. Um, and so like the, like I said, you know, Vermont is a rural, like Charlie said, Vermont's a rural mm -hmm. state and what happens and what matters to the more rural parts of our state really impact all of us. Yeah. So Charlie, why is it called a working group? You know, you're spot on. Uh, we're actually going to agree on this. Uh, there, there was some um, agreement that Red Wing was pretty cool as a moniker, uh, but and that a, a caucus generally does uh, align you with your values that you declare as a party or something similar. Uh, and because we're multi-party, I mean we've got Republicans, Democrats, Independents, uh, Progressives, all members of this this group, um, and sometimes that becomes tricky to, to navigate. Um, that is, it's, there's no clear uh, value proposition that goes in there, except for your dedication to rural. Um, so that's where we do agree. So that's, it's different than a caucus, but it often, we, we sometimes refer to it as the rural caucus, uh, sometimes refer to it as Red Wing. Um, so 
just it's easier within groups to say, oh yeah, those issue caucuses. Um, and there's a few of them in Montpelier, as you know. Um, but yeah, the forced products industry is fascinating um, as a very uh, germane issue to all of the state of Vermont. I mean, Burlington has a McNeil generating plant um, for generating electricity from wood products. Uh, there's a Rygate generating plant as well. Uh, you know, down in Brattleboro with uh, the different lumber companies. And that's a very important part of the rural economy is uh, those people involved in the industry. And it's not just cutting trees. That's not it. Uh, there's engineered lumber. There's all sorts of products being manufactured from wood. There's heat. So, it's, so anyway, so there's been a working group this summer that's kind of a sub-working group of the Red Wing, uh, but uh, it's kind of like a Matryoshka doll, whatever those are. Um, so th- it's been a very dedicated effort by members of the group to go make visits to uh, people involved in the industry. There's loggers, there's people in the uh, power generating plants, furniture makers, uh, everywhere. Uh, so that's been, I think, really beneficial and people have gotten a, an appreciation for how much actually is generated by not not just economically, uh, but how much in conservation of the land, how much it does for cleaning the water systems, uh, air systems, and everything else around the state of Vermont. So that's been very beneficial for the group. Mm-hmm. And I think similar to um, meat processing, which I think we sort of talk about more often in Vermont than we talk about wood products, mm-hmm. um, you, as some industries get strained at one point in the supply chain, it really ripples out to all the rest. And in a place like Vermont that is small, it's extra important to keep an eye on each aspect of the supply chain being stable and whole, because if that shifts, we wind up with like really significant ripple effects about, um, you know, gluts of supply or shortages of supply or different, you know, things need to be trucked so far that it doesn't become um, a viable commercial product anymore for the person selling it. And so really keeping an eye on each aspect of the supply chain and like the detail involved in that is something that I think Red Wing has been doing really well in a bunch of different areas of the economy. And I really respect that, that like really deep attention to detail. Mm-hmm. So, Charlie, from your experience, you know, you mentioned at the the beginning of the show some of the issues you're hearing around broadband and cell service and and water and sewer, which we've been talking a lot about on this show recently. And um, but I'm wondering when you look back over your your time with Red Wing, are you seeing that the challenges, economic challenges in rural communities, have they changed? Have they, you know, are there new things that are challenging them versus maybe 15 years ago? Can you can you kind of put a context around all that? Yeah, it's been a gradual shift of the urbanization of the world, not just of Vermont or of the United States, so that there is more economic activity happening in larger cities than is happening in rural parts of Vermont mm-hmm. uh, or of the world. Um, so that's, uh, we look at their school populations, we look at the struggles of um, any kind of general store uh, to survive in rural communities um, or businesses. Um, so that's been a gradual shift. And it's not just uh, overnight, it's been happening a long time. And so it, it's important for us to recognize uh, what those causes are uh, and to figure out how do we then maintain an economic base and grow that economic base in those rural areas, given that those trends are so strong. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's really, that's where it's really difficult. So we have to make sure people have an equal playing field, that they have access to high-speed broadband and telecommunications, that they have access to great education, that they have access to healthcare. Mm-hmm. Uh, our rural hospitals are challenged and just keeping afloat and um, so there are all these systemic uh, issues that are challenging what rural uh, populations and economies have to deal with. So, um, and that's why we keep focused on this because uh, we have to recognize that it's it's not going to return to what it was. I mean, people can jump in their car and drive 30 minutes to a convenient shopping center, um, and so they're not going to go down to the local store or they're going to use Amazon and and other online shopping. Um, the fact that the post office delivers Amazon on Sundays is really incredible to me. 
Um, so whereas there was a proposal a few years ago to close local post offices on Saturdays to save money, mm-hmm. and now the postal service is delivering on Sundays. It's really interesting, and that's being driven by people shopping online and having packages delivered from some out-of-state purveyor. Uh, so that's it's really challenging. If you're not a tourism economy and you're in Vermont, you've got some real challenges. Um, and and that's uh, in Woodstock, we're lucky because we do have that strong tourism base. Mm-hmm. That comes at a price. Uh, you have to keep investing in, in things that are going to make it attractive for people to come there. Um, you know, and any other tourism economy uh, has to bear that burden as well. I mean, housing prices get higher. Uh, it's it's harder to live there. Um, so that's but so what do you do in a rural Vermont town that doesn't have that tourism base that doesn't have that main employer? Mm-hmm. And that's really what we're looking at is how do you make that town really thrive? Right. And as I'm sure you can imagine, Charlie, we have spent a significant amount of time on the show talking about the challenges of dependency on a tourism mm-hmm. economy in Vermont mm-hmm. um, and what that does for people's quality of life who are working in that economy. And like you said, to the housing stock, to the character of a community that's always looking outward rather than looking inward. Mm-hmm. Um and what it means to sort of brand yourself as something rather than um, be in community with each other. And that it comes, and it does, it, like, it comes with the benefit of like you actually have an economy, whereas in areas of rural Vermont that don't have access to those tourism dollars are in even more challenging straits. And so on an optimistic day in legislative land, which is you know not every day, but most days, um, I feel like the lessons that we can learn about how to strengthen the economy of our rural towns that don't have those tourism dollars are lessons that we can then apply to those tourism economies to help them shift away from that and diversify a little bit, which I think would be great for all of us. Yeah, you know, I think tourism is a great marketing vehicle uh, to bring people that might want to relocate here and want to make it a permanent residence. Um, and it has an incredible value with that. So we've had a number of, um, certainly in the past year, we've had a number of people relocate here who found Vermont first because they were here vacationing or maybe they were a second homeowner or something. But um, I think it is incredible value that way. Uh, and we have to recognize that. And there are some good jobs. There are some good careers. Yes, hospitality industry is known for low pay, but it can also be a great way for someone to make a move without having something nailed down necessarily. It could be a good career if they want to open their own business, that kind of stuff. So it's it's symbiotic. I know what you mean. But uh, I, I certainly coming from a, an area that is dependent on tourism, uh, I recognize the value of it um, as it playing into other things. Mm-hmm. We think about IBM. It started in Vermont because the Watsons like to ski in Vermont. Um, there's plenty of examples like that. Um, so, but... Absolutely. And when I think about, you know, the idea of the Vermont brand started from a place of tourism, um, you know, 100 years ago, and how that's been able to shift to how folks who make cheese can sell their cheese and Mm -hmm. folks who soon grow cannabis can sell their cannabis and Mm. the microbrews and all of those things like that. There's so much. that we gain from being able to tell a story about ourselves to the outside world, absolutely. Um, And I think my hope is that some of those other pieces of the pie is what um, the more rural areas of Vermont are gonna be able to access. I think what I have, you know, last night after we got the confirmation that Charlie was going to join us today, I was thinking about what rural means to me And it has meant different things for me over my life because I spent some time growing up in Wilmington. I spent many years, you know, in Whitingham. Um, And then also my family has a farm over the line in Western Massachusetts and how each one is different, you know, in Wilmington with the tourist economy and we were pretty much downtown. It was very much more of a urban experience. In Whitingham, it's a huge deal. The house that my dad lives in, it's on a paved road with a yellow line down the middle of it, which is different (laughs) than just having a paved road or, you know, like it it tells you something different about how major this road is. But then like on my grandparents' farm, they lived on a road that if somebody went by, 
drove by, everyone ran to the window to see who it was. And if they didn't know who it was, then a 10 minute conversation about who this person possibly could be would then ensue. (laughs) Because who the heck would be driving down this road? (laughs) I have to tell you when Heinsberg Road um, caved in on itself, Mm -hmm. the paved road on the corner caved in on itself. And we suddenly, like our one lane dirt road became a dirt detour for like all of Halifax and Guilford. We were doing that exact same thing. Like, I didn't realize how much I perked up every single time a car went by. (laughs) Like, still so culturally real. That what is that? Um, But on an economic point, um, I was also thinking about how these towns have changed: Wilmington, Whitingham, and Heath, Mass. And um, I think what I find interesting, and this is for me a connection between culture or community community, I should say, and economics, that with the changing economics so that, you know, my family used to run a a general store in Heath, Mass. And it was a thriving general store for many, many, you know, two or three generations. Um, It's not there anymore. And Whitingham has struggled with its general stores. And with the loss of those, those economic pieces, what we're also losing is um, those third spaces mm-hmm. where community meets and talks and shares, you know, shoots the breeze, that type of thing. And so I, I would love for the two of you, when we talk about economic and community for these rural communities, are you seeing those tie-ins as well? Or is economy and, and community very separate um, for the, the working group? Like, I'd love to just dig into that a little bit if we can. Yeah, I think if we look at the vitality of a community and how do you define it, mm-hmm. um, then I think you're talking about that civic engagement and interaction among people who live there, as well as that the actual numbers show that people are able to improve their quality of life or at least their standard of living or at least their disposable household income, if you want to think of it that way. Um, So what measures uh, do you use to measure how how vital a town is? Um, Unfortunately, that we've had a lot of pressure on our school systems and some rural schools closing. To me, that's also a key measurement on how vital a town is, is Mm -hmm. do you have a a stable or growing school population? Um, And that, um, you know, in turn, the school often is that third place. Um, and when you don't have kids in the school system, sometimes you feel disconnected um, from those towns, no matter how big the town is. It, it, there's a bunch of people at the high school. Why is that? Oh, mm-hmm. well, it's you know, such and such. Um, so I, I, I think it's all of that. Um, the, the interconnectedness of people in the community helps make it vital. Um, the, uh, it, you know, it, I'm in North Carolina right now as we speak, and um, this place is exploding in terms of growth with new apartment complexes, new highways, everything else. Uh, we don't have that highways? in Vermont. <laughs> new highways? Uh, yeah, new highways. Yeah. Uh, and it's just, I know. Um, so it, it's, it's amazing to think about that. And they're like, yeah, we have to build new schools. Like, you have to build new schools for because the old ones are, are not in good shape, right? No, no, because we have more kids. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, all right, that's different. Um, so what is it that's driving this economy that uh, could we borrow anything? And I think that's something we're always looking at is what can we borrow from other areas that have been able to solve that issue? It's not Research Triangle Park where I am right now, but uh, but there are other places where we might be able to pull from examples of that. But so th- I think that third space could be that general store that redefines itself. Uh, Butcher and Pantry and Brownsville is an amazing example of a community got together and bought the actual real estate and then brought in a butcher and an operator to run the store. Phenomenal. Um, And they do a great job. And so they've been able to make it, um, but there are other communities that struggle. Yep. And I think there are a lot of communities that have um, over the last few years turned their general stores into co-ops or um, nonprofits, or, you know, that's what Putney did. That's um, what Callis has done, East Callis, I think, not Callis. Um, And so it's happening all over the state, but it's not quite enough, right? It's if everyone who lives in that town has to leave and drive two hours to go to work every day, 
then who has time to go and sit on the porch of the general store and drink coffee? Because they're going to be having to leave at six in the morning, right? And the whole town empties, um, whole town empties. And, you know, we have areas of the state, like Milton Elementary School is the, they actually do need to build more school there, Mm. right? Because we have areas of the state where everyone is sort of flocking to, um, because that's where the resources are. And so I don't think, I think what we've done so far is really great and that we've been able to do some patchwork um, to hold some of our cultural touchstones in place. And I think the co-op um, general stores are a great piece of that or the um, preservation trust general stores, however they're purchased um, is a great piece of that. I think keeping some of our small schools open by helping them you know, achieve economies of scale with a larger district um, can be a really good part of that. But I think if we still have this economy that's structured by everyone in the household having to leave for two hours every, you know, travel for multiple Mm -hmm. hours every day to get to work, the community is going to be just as hollowed out as a suburb. Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't have that. Yeah, because, well, no one's there, quite literally. Because no one's there there in the bulk of the day. Um, And people don't, you know, with that level of commuting, you don't, we talk a lot about volunteerism in Vermont and why it struggles right now. And a lot of it is just like, everyone's so busy working, who has time? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, you know, when I look at solutions from other places, I wonder how much we can draw from internationally um, Mm -hmm. and how rarely we do that here. Because Europe has been having this problem longer than we've had it, right? of people moving to cities of rural areas being hollowed out. Um, and I haven't, like, I'm, I'm not coming with ideas because I read this cool article or something or I've studied this deeply. It's just, um, I'm, one of the things that Olga and I have been trying to do during the off session is to put more of our interview energy into thinking about what people are doing outside of Vermont, like you said, mm-hmm. um, and bringing in experts from that. But from this perspective, you know, Matt Dunn talks about a lot about rural in the national context, but we very rarely talk about it in the international context and what we can learn from developing countries about our broadband problems, what we can learn about Europe, about our aging population problems. Um, And so that's a fun thought project. Yeah, it is. Um, We're certainly not alone in facing this question. Um, you know, the working lands uh, idea, the working lands enterprise board and trying to provide grants to start up uh, agricultural enterprises is vital. I mean, that's what really can make a difference, a differentiation between a vibrant village with farmland but, uh, and one that doesn't have those active farms. Uh, so that is a tremendous program. Um, and there are, they've had great success over the last, I don't know how many years. Um, but so that's something the World Economic Development Working Group, that mouthful, um, that has supported and in increasing the funding for that program over the last few years. And so uh, I see that increasing. I hope that that mm-hmm. um, that continues with that level of support so that we can continue to differentiate those rural areas with actual working lands, not not necessarily dairy farms, um, although dairy is an important part. But we need to diversify that agricultural community into all different product sectors. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, on that note, we need to take a break and hear from some of our underwriters, but just stay tuned, everyone. The Montpelier Happy Hour on WBW 107.7 LP Brattleboro will return. What do we need to remind listeners of? The views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests and not any of the platforms or radio stations that are transmitting these views and opinions. Did you hear that, Charlie? So whatever comes out of your mouth, that is your view and opinion. Got it. (laughs) And now he's not going to talk at all. (laughs) 
I wasn't thinking you were endorsing it by any stretch. Yeah. (laughs) For those who are just joining us, uh, I'm speaking with regular contributor Emily Kornheiser and Representative Charlie Kimball from Woodstock, but who is actually down in the Carolinas right now, uh, beaming in via via Zoom. and we have been talking about the work of the Rural Economic Development Working Group of the Vermont House, known as Red Wing, um, and they have a hearing coming up on November 2nd from 5 to 7 p.m., and you can find more information on Emily's Facebook page. Um, I'll put dates in the show notes, um, and you can also find information on Eventbrite, I believe, is where you sign up. Is that correct, Charlie? That's correct, yes. Great. Yep. Um, so Charlie, over the summer, Paul Costello, the former executive director of um, the Vermont Council on Rural Development, came on this show to talk about uh, an initiative called the Proposition for Vermont. And um, I believe, if I remember correctly, one aspect of, of that um, effort was how do we strengthen our economy in general, but also rural economies. Um, have you been following that? that proposition for Vermont process? I have. I was uh, lucky enough to participate in a couple of conversations uh, with that. And they did a lot of great work in going around the state, interviewing people, receiving a lot of written testimony as to uh, what in the next three years could be done or should be done in order to guarantee the strength of Vermont for the next 30 years. Uh, So it's really a great question. And Uh, In that process, uh, a lot of the same things emerged. And it wasn't just about the economy, but it was about the strength of our communities. And uh, I really applaud VCRD, uh, Vermont Council on Rural Development, for stepping in. Uh, Nobody asked them uh, by statute or by edict to say, you need to do this. Um, It's really the mission of VCRD to uh, look out for the the interests of the rural parts of the state uh, in a nonpartisan way. And I think they did a great job with that. So uh, as part of that, um, and they came up with 10 major themes uh, that they wanted to look at. And uh, as we talked about a little earlier, some of those same things emerged, uh, cell phone uh, coverage and also broadband coverage for the whole state. Um, and would it be all right if I just read my very quick shorthand that I wrote down about these? Sure. Uh, Another would be to, uh, number two, and I think it shows the time we're in, is to combat racism Mm -hmm. uh, in all walks of life in the state. Uh, Number three was to create, uh, come up with creative solutions to uh, climate change in rural Vermont. Uh, Number four is to reduce economic disparities between people living in the state. Um, Number five is to uh, provide access to affordable quality childcare. And we've talked about that as being um, a, a real obstacle for folks trying to re-enter the workforce at this point um, as one of the contributing elements to our workforce shortage. And that's still uh, happening now. And also obviously for uh, child development, uh, many folks don't have the ability to afford good childcare and can't stay home. Mm-hmm. Uh, students uh, learn and thrive in schools. That's number six. Uh, number seven was to strengthen local business and entrepreneurial activities. And that Vermont is so good about nurturing entrepreneurs, or at least welcoming them. Uh, now sometimes we don't have the economies to scale to supply to support all entrepreneurs and the, their businesses and their niches, but it's uh, very welcoming that for that. Uh, and to look at the uh, efficiency of our planning and development efforts in the state, and uh, better coordinated through regions and also at the state level. Uh, we used to have a, uh, a state level planning office. We don't have that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have regional plans. So that's kind of interesting um, to look at conserving lands and waters in the state and to make sure that Vermont is um, has a very good environment. And number 10 was to really look at renewing civic engagement. And uh, because we have lost some of the trust in our civic institutions, uh, or at least it seems like it's there. Um, so anyway, so it came, came up with those 10 themes. Those are very broad and, uh, and we need to explore those from a legislative standpoint, uh, do they need to have legislative action? Uh, we've got a, an omnibus bill that we're putting together for the for Red Wing that we plan to introduce in December, to at least start to have it drafted. Um, and so that tries to encapsulate what the different interests are uh, from the different members and also 
take into account the input we got to that public hearing um, so that we, we can then put that all in one bill, uh, which we haven't done before, to put it into this omnibus bill that is everything. We are sure that some parts won't survive and some parts will, but we haven't had an opportunity to say, this is what we believe in. Um, and so that's what we're trying to do with this omnibus bill. So part of what they came up with uh, with our studies will certainly incorporate. I'm so excited to see how you incorporate it because I think I said this to Paul when he came on, some aspects of that are um, by necessity so general and lofty. And I the leap between making them actionable seems... Um, to be where the rubber hits the road, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I, I am just like, you know, I feel like every person in Vermont would have a different vision for how to make some of that stuff actionable. And some of it like increasing civic engagement, we could have thousands of people, all of different strategies on that, that would all probably meld together really, really effectively. And we would, you know, be increasing civic engagement. But some of the others, I think that, um, multiple paths might cancel each other out of it. And so I'm curious how you've been sort of thinking about how to how to narrow that path. Well, you know, it's interesting. Some of the things in there, I think we've already got a pretty good start on. So when we talk about uh, making sure that we have access to broad uh, broadband, so yes. there's been a lot of money put in that in the communication union districts. And so there's a lot of uh, groundwork that's been laid and a lot of money now that's uh, in, in play to actually make that happen. But like civic engagement, last year we did uh, move on the Better Places program, which is really a, a grassroots effort to make uh, to improve public spaces. Um, and there are some grant monies applied to that. So that has to be really community driven uh, in order to get those members of the community to work together and talk together about how they can improve the community. So some of those things we've, we've got a pretty good start on. Um, there are other things, if we talk about local economies, if we talk about forestry and we talk about some of the regulatory issues that they face, can we change those? Um, if we talk about those small villages, uh, what kinds of things are hampering some of their development? Uh, we've had an Act 250 reform bill kind of on the wall for, um, for a while, and it, it hasn't moved much. Uh, and it, there's, it was difficult, it was a very difficult two years that we went through um, with looking at that, but it's been a four to five year process about how to recast Act 250 for the next 50 years. Um, but some of those things, such as how do you make it easier to build and maintain recreational trails, mm -hmm. which benefits a lot of rural communities, that's going to be in the bill, I hope. Uh, I don't have the final say on it. Um, but so other stuff like how is there an easier way to encourage development in a village or neighborhood development area um, that would then help those communities grow uh, be, uh, and get the permitting a simpler and more streamlined. Mm -hmm. uh, we think that there is. So, but you're right. The, the rubber does meet the road. Can we get those across the finish line? We can certainly advocate for them and hope that the legislature will go along with us. Yeah. Um, you know, on Act 250, so much of the struggle, I think down here particularly, um, isn't even in the actual law, it's in the struggle around how to engage with the regulatory apparatus of the law. Um, and what, you know, I talk a lot about the Department of Financial Regulation as this example of like a positive regulatory function that's actually, that's invested in assisting people to navigate its processes. Um, and so much of Act 250 and even town, you know, we have this very vibrant, in our big city of Brattleboro, we have this really dynamic planning department that is fully funded. I mean, I don't, they probably want more staff than they have, but like there are <laughs> staff there that are paid salaries and do a great job and are available to help people navigate all of these things. Um, at the town level, if people want to develop the town, they've helped us really change all of our housing codes so that it's much easier to build new housing here. And Smaller towns and villages don't have that capacity, and that's something that the state could absolutely offer, in addition to the massive problems with wastewater that we've spent two whole our last two whole episodes talking about, and I just don't think I can talk about the poop and pee anymore, so we're not going to rehash that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but 
because neither conversation was supposed to be about wastewater. They were both supposed to be about like ARPA funds and yeah. our um, regional planning commissioner and then Katie Buckley from VLCT both like just spent the whole time talking about sewers. Because you know what rolls downhill. So it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's I mean, that's the ultimate uh, uh, point of constraint mm-hmm. um, is that if <laughs> If you can't process the waste, you can't build it. So it's, no, yeah. no, absolutely. And that's you know, I do have hopes that we're finally all getting our heads around. That's a place that we need to actually put money, even though it doesn't tell the sexiest of stories to our constituents. But Emily, I think you raise a really good point about smaller communities and regulations and and having the capacity mm-hmm. to um, deal with a lot of the things that come down the pike. Um, you know, towns like Brattleboro, I, I, I hope they thank their town staff daily because whether or not you agree with some of the choices the town might be making, they have a fully professionalized municipality, which means they just have more capacity than some towns who have maybe a part-time librarian, three select board members and a treasurer or a town clerk. You know, that is just such a different level of capacity. And so when you're dealing with something like economic development, like uh, sewer infrastructure, like new regulations, that can can just be um, I, I it's I can see a gap widening between what towns can accomplish based on just that type of capacity. One thing I um, one of the tension points in that tension is that this fierce independent spirit of Vermonters, right? Mm-hmm. And um, the power of town meeting and the sacred nature of town meeting. And um, then I, so thinking about fire departments, just mm-hmm. as an example, because it's, it's fire departments are kind of like the promise of civilization, right? Like your house is on fire, someone will come. Um, and here in Brattleboro, we have a professional fire department that is paid and always available. And as the um, capacity of folks to volunteer in these outlying areas wanes, as there's less people in these outlying areas, we're going to need to think about fire department capacity differently. I think there's sort of a similar, you know, we have some similar stories we could tell about police capacity. Um, and, but that I would means, actually start with capacity around EMTs and and I've had the EMT come we've had the EMT conversation um, around the state a lot and it's almost the fire and the EMT thing are very similar. Mm-hmm. So what towns in order to have like if we're going to regionalize some of those supports, the planning functions in a really dynamic way, the regulatory functions in a really dynamic way, um, in a way that's like supportive and helpful the same way a town staff is supportive and helpful. Mm-hmm. That's um, gives up some of the freedoms and some of the local control. And yeah. we, I mean, that's that's Act 46, right? Um, in a lot of ways, yeah. the dynamic and the turmoil of Act 46. There's a lot that I think we can leave unsaid about the problems of Act 46 right now, but that like essential tension between how can we create scale to solve problems and what are what control are we willing to lose in order to have that happen? I think is a lot of what we come to when we think about how to increase what it means to really like make sure that every small town is served. Mm-hmm. Well, it also works against what we were just talking about with civic engagement. Yes, um, and um, regionalization can gr- bring greater resources to solve your problems, and that's great as long as it works. But um, and people don't want to lose control over the decisions they can make. But the, the greatest casualty in all of that is neighbors talking to neighbors mm-hmm. about what's important for them. I mean, it's not uncommon to have uh, open positions uh, that need to be appointed by the select board of the town on a regional level that they can't fill. They can't figure mm-hmm. out who's going to take that position. So it's, um, yeah, I, it, it's an interesting thing. The, the RP, the regional planning commissions have been providing, and you've already had RPCs on, I guess, um, they've been providing more support um, to some of their smaller towns, uh, but you're absolutely right. The idea of a three-member select board, and I'm thinking about the town of Reading, which I represent, uh, and three very dedicated members serving on the select board for a long time. They know every inch of that town uh, and do a great job 
Um, but the idea of taking on a, a whole new project is kind of overwhelming. Um, mm-hmm. And so then they can have, there can be another group of citizens that does stuff and that that propose things, but it's it's difficult to integrate those two if those if those other folks don't feel like they have a seat at the table. I mean they do, but they don't. But it's it's just that weird thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. But I I do, I rule when something gets regionalized to the point at which the locals aren't involved. Yeah, and so that is like. I think sometimes we fight this regionalization so hard because we're scared of how it will disempower our communities because it will, that we don't, um, it keeps us from accepting the changes that we need to make and making sure we're stepping into them with like our eyes wide open. And so I think sometimes if we try to proact, if the folks who are worried about being disempowered were the ones leading the regionalization efforts rather than you know, um, kicking and screaming, we might see like amazing, magical, innovative ways of, you know, keeping empowerment as part of that. And I think that's a lot of the magic of the Council of Unreal Development when they do their work well, Mm -hmm. um, that they're able to walk that line and they're able to articulate that line really well. I want to make sure, you know, when we hit on broadband, we sort of skim past it because we're actually doing such a good job solving it right now. And it might not feel like that on the ground, um, but we do have a really dynamic communications union district that Brattleboro is a part of, that most of Wyndham County, uh, that Southern Wyndham County is a part of um, Deerfield Communication oh, Union yeah. District. We just received an enormous grant um, from that was sort of appropriated by the legislature that is gonna start build out. Folks can learn more about that quite easily by actually going to the region, Wyndham Regional Planning Commission's website, there's a link there to the communication union district. And we've had Representative Sibelia on in the past to talk about that a little bit. So if folks wanna go find that past episode to learn more, that's a great opportunity. But that is like, that's something we were like, this is a problem we need to solve. We're gonna do our very best to set up really empowering structures to solve it. Mm-hmm. And then maybe magical federal money will fall from the sky and save us, and it did. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so nice when that actually happens. <laughs> Maybe it'll happen again this year. Yeah. Um, so what are, are there anything specific besides, you mentioned broadband, but are there other specific either uh, proposed legislation or, or other um, issues that Red Wing is working on right now that people might want to know about before uh, the hearing on November 2nd? Well, we're in the middle of developing this omnibus bill, so there are some specifics, but um, the next step for our group is to really look at, because not everybody knows what they are yet, is to share that list and then have a debate about what do we really want to put in this bill, Mm -hmm. Um, because not everything will make it through. Um, And that's why I said I don't have the ability to determine if the trails language will make it through, um, because it's up to the group. Um, and said, and that doesn't prevent a legislator from pursuing that in a different way. So it's it's uh, multi-pronged. So we really want to hear what um, people are thinking locally um, that they would like to see, uh, and that based on their experience, what is it that would help their local economy to sustain itself or to grow mm-hmm. uh, without telling them what we're already thinking about. Um, so we don't want them to react. We want to react to what their um, their impressions are. Um, and then so by December, when we introduce this into the legislature um, drafting pool, uh, then we'll have a clearer sense of what we can get into the bill. Thank you. And again, because it's an issue caucus um, or an issue working group, the the listening to folks from the public hearing is the opportunity to sort of construct the ideas. Mm -hmm. And then any bill that's developed as a product of that will go through the regular committee process where there might be more public hearings that are designed to be reactive. So this is sort of the generative public hearing phase, but as if it, if and when it's pulled off the wall, so to speak, and becomes a subject for debate within the legislature, there are opportunities for reactive public comment then. Absolutely. Yeah. Good point. So Emily, when you put the the hearing notice up on your Facebook page, it mm-hmm. really sparked a, a, 
a dynamic conversation. And I think you got some really great comments from folks. What at this point is your takeaway from, from that conversation? Anything that you're sitting with right now? Well, I do always love a good conversation about short-term rental regulations. That is top of my list of fun things. And so um, I'm going to continue working on that despite um, some of the challenges it poses for some of my colleagues. And then, um, so I was excited to see some public support for that um, because I have a lot of New Yorkers writing me angry emails every day still. Um, And then I was really heartened by how much the language around rural development actually just resonated for my constituents and the folks who are reacting on my Facebook page. Um, That that language and that visioning and that idea is just really meaningful for people as a way of engaging with government. Because, you know, I post a lot of stuff up on the social media and do a lot of different ways of communicating. And when something like just sort of sparks people, I'm like, oh, okay, this is like, this is something I'll dive deeper on. And so that that for me is the biggest takeaway that the language was resonant for me when I first joined the legislature and I started to doubt myself about it. And now like really having that feedback from my constituents that this is, this is how people perceive themselves in our community. Nice. Interesting. Thank you. Um, we have just a couple minutes uh, before the end of the show. Uh, Charlie, you're looking surprised again. It really does go fast, <laughs> but that's because we're having a good conversation. Um, yeah. Charlie, what do you want to leave listeners with before we before we head out? Well, it's trite to say we're all in this together, but uh, Vermont, by uh, on its whole, is rural, mm-hmm. and whatever we can. Um, focus on for ideas and energy about how do we keep those smallest towns? Um, how could how do we help those towns that are 1,500 members? Um, that's the real challenge I think that we face. Um, and I think about that every day and trying to think about how can we make sure that they have a solid economic future? Um, and so that's that's what I want to leave with and that's I want to hear from those people that live in those towns um, to say this is what we need to do. Thank you. How about you, Emily? Every time you ask this question, every time I'm surprised, I'll go week by week by week. I love that, you know, after three years of doing the show, I can still surprise you. <laughs> Keeping it fresh. It's really ridiculous. Um, actually, I, I think what Charlie said isn't right. I think it's absolutely true. I think most strategies, if, that, if we can take them in Vermont and if we can find solutions that really lift the water and lift the boats for the people who are sort of most impacted by problems, very, you know, like folks in small, small towns and find economic solutions for them. I think they will be economic solutions that work for all of us and that can really shift the conversation um, for our whole economy. Thank you. Well, Charlie uh, Kimball, thank you so much for joining us. As always, you can find the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVW 107.7 LP Brattleboro. And Emily, where can folks find you if they want more information? Folks folks can go to emilykornheiser.org. And from there, you can find links to all my social media channels, as well as my email address and my phone number if you want to be in touch. Charlie, you have a website too, don't you? I do. It's uh, woefully out of date, but it's charliekimball.com. And Kimball is with an E. I ring, I don't dance. That's right. (laughs) I've never heard you say that. I love <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> I love it. Well, Charlie, it's been a pleasure. Hey, everyone, have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you next week. Bye.